yesterday. I didn't really get very far. This first tape is Isaiah 1, 1 through 9, I guess. And we're not talking chapters, we're talking verses. But at any rate, we've got a background laid to show, really, that this is talking not just to physical Israel, though certainly there is that uh, reality but first of all to the church. So it applies first to us, secondly to physical Israel, and we're already going through what physical Israel is about to go through, only at the moment we're doing it on a spiritual level, and they're about to suffer it on a physical level, and 90% of the church is going to go in and suffer on the same physical level that the rest of Israel does. This is important for us to understand. Uh, I think I'll pick it up right there in verse 9, in fact. Uh, he, he says in verse 8 that Israel, or the church first, is minimized. There's not much left. And then he says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. They were totally wiped out. And God said, unless he had reserved the small remnant, the church would be in the same condition as Sodom and Gomorrah, and ultimately physical Israel would be the same. Absolutely, totally wiped out. Now, we got into tithing a little bit yesterday, and I want to make a few more comments about that at this juncture. How big is a very small remnant? Let's go to Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5. This is one that we are quite familiar with. But here, speaking of Israel, Ezekiel is told by God to take a barber's razor and pass it through his beard and his head and take what hair was there and weigh it out in the balance, and then he was to do something with it. You shall burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled, and you shall take a third part and smite about it with a knife, like a sword coming through. And the third part you shall scatter in the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. So even the third part that was scattered, he would draw out a sword or a knife to try to pursue and track down those. You shall also take care of a few in number and bind them in your skirts. A third, a third, and a third is how much? That's 90%. So he was to take about 10% and bind them in his skirts. Then take of them again, even the 10% that's left, and cast them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire, for therefore shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. So, almost a total wipe out here. I have a note in my Bible there to look at Zechariah 13.8. Let's turn back. Let's see why I put that in there. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, says the eternal of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. So he holds the ministry accountable, and then he turns his hand against the little ones, so he holds the people accountable as well. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Eternal, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, 
They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. We're going to see some very similar language later in chapter 1 of Isaiah. Now, while we're back this direction, let's go again to Malachi and see that in this very much end-time book, the book of Malachi, he jumps all over the ministry in the first two chapters. Uh, very strong language, and I'm not going to go through it. We've been there in the Minor Prophet series. And then he says in chapter 3, I will send my messenger, and shall prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. So God is going to be hands-off, and then at some point he is going to suddenly come to his temple. Remember how suddenly he came in Pentecost, on Pentecost in Acts 2? Uh, I suspect that we're going to have a somewhat similar situation. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? Is this an end-time context, or what? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi in the end time? The church. And purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the eternal an offering in righteousness. Now that tells you there that it has to be people who are living righteously if they were to offer an offering in righteousness. So it's not just talking about the world in general. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the eternal opposed. So God makes a wide judgment here, entailing really all of his law. For I am the Lord, I change not. God says, I change not. Hebrews 13, 8 says, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or is that the right scripture? It says that somewhere. I just stuck in my mind. I think that's it. He doesn't change. Whatever he believed in the beginning, he still believes. Even sacrifices are still in effect. The principle is carried forward. Now we don't have the blood of bull and goats, but we present our bodies a living sacrifice. And of course Christ became the overall sacrifice. So a sacrificial system is still in effect. He doesn't change. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. What does that mean? That means he was patient in the beginning, and he's still patient. So he's not going to consume everyone. But he's going to consume most from off the earth. Even from the days of your fathers, you were gone away from my ordinances. His teachings, his statutes, his ordinances, his laws, his ways, in other words. Everything that he laid down. You've gone away from them and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the eternal of hosts. That's what scripture throughout urges you and me to do is return to God. 
But you said, wherein shall we return? What are we doing wrong? We think we're okay. Don't most people in the church today think they're okay, that somebody else must have a problem? God gives an example. You say, wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. God says, you've robbed me, but you don't think so. Okay? Wherein have we robbed you? And his answer is, in tithes and in offerings. One of the big important things God is extremely angry about right now is his people turning away from tithing. Now, some cynic would say, why is Daryl talking about that? You don't hear me talking about money much, do you? You've never heard me ask for money. You, we don't even take up an offering anymore. We just leave the box over on the table and you take care of your responsibility to God in your time and your way and in your amount and no one urges you to give more. And I'll tell you quite frankly, I was making a whole lot more money when I was out of the ministry than I was before I went out of it and by far than since when I came back into the ministry. So to me, money and the ministry have nothing to do with each other as far as me personally is concerned. I could leave the ministry again and go make far more money than I'm making now. In fact, I'm not even taking a salary now, although we take some expenses out and so on. But as far as a salary per se, I stopped doing that nearly two years ago. So money is not my object here. My object is to be sure God's people walk righteously before Him and they do what He wants done. But this is the subject God brings up in the end time book of Malachi to explain how we have robbed Him. And many, many people in the church today are departing from God's tithing ordinances. God brings it up in the end-time context. He's not talking about some farmers in 800 B.C. He's talking about God's people at the end, just as Christ is refining and purifying his people. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole people, be it the nation of Israel or the church. The church is turning away from it, just like the world. So he says, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. And you could say, well, maybe he's just talking about the world. Well, aren't we part of the people of the world? And if he means the world is to do it, how much more would he want his people to do it? That there may be meat in my house. God wants his temple rebuilt. And he wants it to be furnished properly. And prove me now with, herewith, says the eternal host, if I want to open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the eternal host. In other words, we are in a spiritual famine now, as Amos clearly shows us. And God says that he will remove that if we will begin to truly turn to him. And he uses tithing as one example of that. If he brought it up as a specific example, then he must be concerned about it. Now, I want to bring out a principle in Isaiah 1 as a takeoff on verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts be left to us a very small remnant. 
Remember Ezekiel took out 90% and then he threw a few more into the fire. Let's see in Isaiah 7, this is a little bit of a flash ahead, but go into Isaiah 7, verse 13. Well, verse 12, pick up the, well, even verse 11. Then, I, then said I, Lord, how long? question a lot of us have. And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and have they a great forsaking in the midst of the land. God is going to take us into physical captivity, but already we see the church in famine, pestilence, spiritual war, and decimation. But yet in it shall be a tent, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them, and when they, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. God is going to save a holy seed for himself to start over with, both in the church before Christ returns, and in physical Israel in the millennium, when he does return. Now let's pursue a very interesting thought here. Satan is the present ruler of this world, isn't he? And the prince of the power of the air and a lot of things. Now Christ came and he was tempted of Satan and beat him in that particular instance and he is qualified to take over the rulership of the earth. But he has not yet done so. Look around and you can see very clearly Satan's sway is still in effect. Now, God has said, you rule the earth, and until I come back, you can rule. And you can do whatever you wish with nine-tenths of Israel. You can do as you wish with nine-tenths of the church. Just like he told Job. You can do anything with Job you want except kill him. You can do anything with Israel you want. You can do anything with the church you want, with nine-tenths of it, but one-tenth is mine. Isn't that an interesting parallel? I am reserving to myself ten percent. You can have that ninety percent. This ten percent is mine. God is keeping a tithe for himself. Does he believe in tithing? Does he believe in Satan, letting Satan have use of 90%, but he's going to save 10% for himself? That's exactly what he's going to do. And he will use that seed to build upon, that 10% seed from the whole crop of Israel. That's one reason this is so important a subject to God. Because that's what he's going to do. Now, I cannot, by any stretch of my imagination, even begin to imagine that God would consider including in his faithful one-tenth any who do not faithfully pay their one-tenth to him. argue with that one. All right.
right, let's pick it up again in verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we should have been at Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. I am very, very thankful God still believes in tithing. Hopes there would be no place for you and me. We would be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how complete a destruction he would make upon us. Hear the word of the Eternal, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he likens his church and physical Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when this scripture was written, Sodom and Gomorrah had already been destroyed. So he wasn't talking about the physical rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was using symbolism here that his people were in the same condition as Sodom and Gomorrah. Gone completely away from him. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? All the lip service you give me, all the things you think you do, don't mean a thing to me because you are not seeking me with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, your whole soul. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Eternal, I am fed up or full, satiated, uncomfortable with, perhaps, the multitude of the burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of rams or of he goats. Now God has said that he has never been happy with those things, that they could not remove sin, that they could not really gain us anything. They were given so the people might be reminded who God is. And they had to give sacrifices and offerings all the time to remind them who God is. And that is essentially what the tithing process is. There is nothing much dearer to human beings than material things. Therefore, God instituted a tithing system so that we would give back 10%, keep 90% for our own use are to use for the benefit of others in the case of third tithe. But that is a constant reminder that he is God and we are man. It is a constant reminder that he is going to save out a faithful 10% remnant. I never tied that together until it crossed my mind yesterday. But it's a very important tie-in. When we come right down to the end of the age, God is going to save 10% of the church for himself. 10% of Israel is seed for the millennium. Does God need it? No. He does not need your tithe and mine. I've tithed for 50 years. Did he need it? No. All the gold and the silver is his. The whole universe is his. He doesn't need it. We need to do it. It's good for us. It reminds us who God is. It reminds us where everything we have came from. And without that reminder, it's easy for people to drift further and further away from God. Blood of bull and goats doesn't mean anything really to God. But our heart and our life as a living sacrifice serving others is truly important to God. 
Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Or it says more in the New King James, when you appear before me, who asks you to trample all over my court? Did God ask us to trample on the holy things and the things of God? No. Well, we have. He says, bring no more vain oblations, things that don't mean anything. Bring yourself before me, but don't even bother to come unless you do it wholeheartedly and not in a lukewarm fashion. Because I spew that out of my mouth. I don't like it. I can't handle it. You'll say that here in a moment. Bring no more worthless, vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. Now, he speaks in other places in the Bible of our prayers being a sweet incense. When we come wholeheartedly in obedience before God, our prayers are a sweet incense to it. But if we come half-heartedly, we come laodiceanly, we come lukewarmly, we come in disobedience, or whatever human form we come, God can't stand the smell in his nose. That is not a sweet-smelling incense to him. So, in this context, incense is an abomination to him. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I can't stand. Paraphrasing <laughs> a little bit. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. We can be meeting here for the Feast of Tabernacles, and God consider it an abomination. Does he? We need to be sure he doesn't. We need to be absolutely sure that what we bring before God is not torn and lame and of inferior quality. That said in Malachi, 1 verse 7, You offer polluted bread upon my altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted you? And then you say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. You say by how you live, by what you do, that the table of the Lord is contemptible. It doesn't matter what we offer before God. I can bring whatever I want. I can be whatever I want to be. God will just have to accept me like I am. No, he doesn't. He holds the key to resurrection and eternal life. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. We must learn to fear God or we don't even have any wisdom. And if we bring that which is polluted before him, we are not showing proper fear and respect of God. We are showing contempt. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Or accept your person, says the Lord of hosts? You're going to offer to the IRS that which is insufficient? Will they find you contemptible? <laughs> yeah, they will. Oh, you're, you're careful to be sure you give them what they ask. Well, why don't you give me what I ask, God says. We can't take God for granted. A lot of people are. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. He's talking to the end time church. And he says, your feast of tabernacles, I hate, I can't stand it. I just heard a few days ago of a certain organization who has a touring feast site in Italy. Apparently, they tour from city to city during the day, go sightseeing and look at coliseums and old churches and Vatican's and whatever else you look at with serpents and pigs all over it like the Vatican is. And then they have a meeting before God at night. Now, after you've toured a city all day, you're going to be attentive, attending a service before God at night. Are you coming to the Feast of Tabernacles to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, as Zechariah 14 tells you? Are you there to enjoy the ruins of ancient pagan Italy. Now, would God be pleased with that kind of feast site? Would God be pleased with us going to Branson, Missouri and entertaining ourselves for eight days? Would God be pleased with a site in Orlando, Florida where we can go to Disney World as soon as the closing prayer is given each day? Is that focusing on God? I'll tell you, he hates that kind of feast site. He says we're to keep the feast where he has said his name, not Walt Disney or Mel Tillis or the Pope. We had better be very careful how we approach his feast of tabernacles because he's already told us ahead of time he can't stand the feasts of the end-time church. There is a challenge here. There is a challenge to keep the feast in the spirit and attitude God would have his feast kept and not come and pass God a crust of bread while we party on anything and everything we want with our set of friends and leave everyone else out. That's not what the millennium is all about, brethren. The millennium is about peace and closeness and family with everyone. All nations of the earth at peace. All living in peaceful coexistence and gelling together as one body. We had better get the message. I don't know about you, but I want to be in the kingdom of God. And I want all of you to be in the kingdom of God. And I don't want to, us to leave this feast with God angry at us because we came here and did not put him first. Now, yes, it says that we can come to the feast and we can rejoice before him and we can eat and drink and enjoy. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying we ought to put on priests and nuns robes and walk around and never smile. I'm not saying that at all. We should be rejoicing and fellowshipping together, but we should be doing it before God and making sure He is the focus. Who is going to be the focus of the world in the millennium? The Father and the Son. 
and all will come and worship before him. Every feast, every new moon, every Sabbath, they'll come and worship before the king. He is going to be the center of the world universe. We're here to picture that, and we had better be sure that he is the center of our festival. The only reason we come to the Feast of Tabernacles is to worship God. Otherwise, we could go on vacation at the lake or in Italy or Slobovia or somewhere. Wouldn't matter. We come here to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And I'm telling you, if we don't, he's not going to be happy. Maybe he did have a hand in a broken cable that caused us to cancel opening night. Maybe he wanted our attention. Maybe he is merciful enough, loving enough, and kind enough, and has enough belief that you and I are trying to get our lives straightened out that he chastened us a little bit. Maybe he loved us enough that he did. He wiped out a lot of these sites in the United States this year. Or the Prince of the Power of the Air did. But God passed on it. He allowed it. Even if he didn't cause it, he allowed it. For his purposes. Now, he gave us a bump in the road. But he let us continue. But maybe it should get our attention. We were supposed to be here to have a service to worship God. Now I made some joke about I'm the only one that's happy because I get off the hook and don't have to speak. But that was a joke. I wanted to have an opening service. I wanted to open this before God and ask his presence here. Maybe he loved us enough to just give us a smack on the bottom, not wipe it out like he did in some places. Maybe there are a lot of people who are meeting somewhere that didn't get wiped out that ought to be looking at what happened and say, this happened just before the feast. Is there some correlation here? I remember sitting in Jekyll Island with a hurricane right off the coast back in the late 60s. And we prayed and we prayed and it stayed off the coast. Would it have come in? I suspect it would have. But God's people implored him and we were spared. I don't know. And I'm not saying that what I'm saying here is necessarily absolutely correct, but I think it's worth our consideration. But we might better mend our ways and be sure why we're here and make God the center of our universe while we're here. Because it's His feast day. Notice He says, I hate your new moons and your appointed feasts. Doesn't hate His kept in the manner in which He ordained that they should be kept. And he tells us how they should be kept in Zechariah 14. Maybe we should turn back there instead of just quoting. I think this is important. Zechariah 14, verse 16. It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. All these, what's God doing? He's wiping out entire nations. He's wiping out over 90% of the population of the earth, and all those that are left are going up to the Feast of Tabernacles to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts. 
And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even to them shall be no rain. And he talks about Egypt. If they don't, they won't get any rain. He uses them for example. Egypt is a symbol of, symbol of sin in the Bible. So anyone who is sinful will have no rain. Well, maybe God gave us a little smack on the rear end at the beginning, but we've had rain since, haven't we? Maybe you're already straightening your attitudes up. Maybe we have gotten our focus proper. I hope so. If not, then maybe we need to work on that to be sure we put God first here. Isn't that what the whole thing is about, brethren? Isn't that what we've been talking about and preaching about and trying to get straightened out now for years? is to make God number one in our lives, to put this world and everything in it aside, and to put God first. That should be our focus here. Now, we can enjoy each other's company. That's wonderful. And iron sharpens iron. And I was with a whole bunch of people last night, and we had questions back and forth and talked about God's way for four hours. And it was a wonderful time to discuss God. Very enjoyable. Hard to do in a restaurant, but we kind of had potluck there in the room, or well, they provided the food, and we were jammed in there like sardines, but it was a wonderful time. And uh, those are the things that I can look to and say, man, this is the way it ought to be. That doesn't mean we can't eat at a restaurant, but I found that it's very hard to have any truly meaningful conversation in a restaurant because you got people chattering and, and uh, glasses and things banging and, and you sit at a table where you, you can only talk to the one next to you or across from you and you can't yell down to the other end. So it's hard to have anything of much value. Maybe if you got a round table and you got six or eight people there, you can. But it's just harder. Uh, what we did last night was, I thought, optimal. Uh, I think it's something God would have been pleased with. And I, I would like to see it repeated here and there. Find a way to make God first. Make sure that we do that. I want him pleased with us. And this is the best way. It's the best way. That's what he asks for. And if we do it, then he says he'll bless us. I want his blessing. So I'm not here necessarily to chew on us in that sense. I'm here to try to explain what God is after and hope that we can modify our plans, modify our lack of plan, and make a plan to draw near to God. Make time to spend time alone with God. Find a way to go walking by yourself. Find a way to go sit under a tree and look at the beauty of his creation and be thankful for what he's done. Find a way to kneel by your bed or whatever and spend a great deal of time with God at this feast. That's what we're here for. And it will make everything else we do more godly if we draw near to him first. Then we will have a better chance of reacting and walking by the Spirit while we're here and fulfilling his purposes rather than reacting carnally and fulfilling our personal physical desires. Not that we can't enjoy the physical things. But it is enjoying the physical things and forgetting our Creator that God is upset with the whole church in the first place. 
And here he specifically mentions to the end time church the feasts. Maybe we need to look at what we have done at the feasts over the years and modify our way of doing it. I've kept the feast for over 50 years now. This probably is the 50th year. I think we first went in 54, even though we were involved in 52 and 53. I've had good ones and I've had bad ones. Despite the fact everybody says it's always the best feast ever, there have been some feasts over the years where I took the time and spent time with God and had a spiritually rewarding feast. There have been times where I got distracted with other things and didn't spend much time doing what I should have been doing. So it's been up and down. And over the last 20, 25 years, it seems more and more that the places God has so-called placed his name have become more and more the entertainment centers of the world. I don't think God placed his name there. I think man placed his name there. We better be careful about where God places his name. And then if he has placed his name there, then we'd better be careful about our conduct while there, hadn't we? Because if God's name is there, and he's there, if God is there, that makes that a holy place. And we had better act in a holy manner, or we'll defile it, and this will apply to us. I don't want it to. When we go away from here in a few days, I want us to be able to drive away content that we worship God and fulfilled our purpose at this feast. And I want him to smile and say, there was a little bitty group of my people who kept the feast the way I wanted it kept. I'd like him to say that about us. I'd like to see him look down and smile and say, I'm going to bless them. They did the way I wanted it done. And I will. That would be a neat thing. All right. Your new moons, not his. See, we've, we've taken them to ourselves in all too many cases. We've made it our vacation rather than a specific time set aside to worship him and to picture the millennium, to picture a time where there will be truly peace and safety and security. The most wonderful time that has ever been on the face of the earth. And we are to make this eight days a microcosm of that. But if we take it and do our thing, then it's not his feast anymore. Then it's our feast. I remember Mr. Armstrong saying many times over the years, This isn't God's church anymore! This isn't God's calling! In other words, it had been God's college. It had been God's church. But our conduct had made it our college and our church. That's the point he was trying to make. That God could not have been pleased with our conduct. So let's make sure that God says, that's my feast. Those are my people. They're 
are a precious few of them. There are a precious few in the whole greater church of God today that God is looking down with pleasure upon. And he has even said, 90% are going into the tribulation. He is only going to save out a small remnant, a tithe for himself. I want to be part of this tithe. Verse 15, And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Are we sacrificing each other? Are we sacrificing for each other? If we're sacrificing each other spiritually, then our hands are full of blood. But if we sacrifice ourselves, our time, our energy for others, then the blood of Christ covers our hands. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. I can't stand to look at your doings. Put those away. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Now, this is in the context of the feast. Here's what God would expect of us at the feast. Okay? I wouldn't have to alter our plan somewhat. But here, in the following verses, is what God expects of you and me right now. Today. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. If there are any around who don't have much, or they're oppressed in some way, figure it out. Help them in whatever way you can. Maybe they're oppressed emotionally. Maybe they're oppressed spiritually. Maybe they're oppressed physically. Whatever difficulty they might have. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Proper judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Consider the fatherless. Judge doesn't mean anyone who's fatherless you condemn in the terms of judgment in that sense. But judge right judgment. If there are those who are fatherless, do what you can for them. Plead for the widow. We can plead with God for the widow. Pray for the widows. We can take the widows to lunch. Take the widows to dinner. Help the widows. Isn't that part of the purpose of third tithe? Or I mean of uh, second tithe? Yes, it is. When you go to the feast, you're supposed to take care of the widow, the stranger, the fatherless, the orphan, and so on. But then if we don't believe in tithing, we don't keep second tithe either. We just use our credit card or whatever money we can scare up at the last minute. You throw the tithing system out, you don't have the wherewithal to keep the feast the way God said to do it, do you? But if you do as God said, you should have plenty for you and plenty for others who have need. That's what the feast is for, is to serve. Isn't that what our job is going to be in the millennium? Is to take a world that has been decimated, devastated, destroyed, people who have nothing to eat, nothing to wear to speak of, no place to live. And it is our job to help all those people come to have everything that they could so desire. That is our job in the millennium. We should be rehearsing that now. Doing everything we can for others so that it is a true picture of the millennium. 
Come now, let us reason together, says the Eternal. Or listen to reason, might be a better way of putting it. Come now, listen to reason, says the Eternal. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now there's some real encouragement that he throws in here. He said, I can't stand the way things are. <coughs> Change it, fix it, and I'll make you a deal. I'll wipe away all your sins. I'll wipe away all your past. I will take away that which I could not stand. Wipe it out and take it as far as east is from the west and never mention it to you again if you'll straighten up. What better deal could you get than that? That's a pretty good deal. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Isn't that what he told us that back in Malachi? That I'll remove the famine and you will eat the good of the land. Now, I think that this little group has been making strides in this direction. And I think that God has been giving us doctrine in abundance that others simply are not getting. Now, that doesn't make us better than them. But maybe God is encouraging us by giving us more understanding than we've had because we have begun to move in the right direction. Now, isn't that what he's talking about in these verses? If you will move in the right direction, I will begin to bless you. And I think, and I find encouragement in this, that we are serious about this and that we're beginning to move in the right direction and God is responding He's giving us understanding we haven't had before. Like the Passover, the foot washing, the day of unleavened bread, Passover being the memorial, maybe even understanding something like how much he treasures his tent. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. We'll be willing and obedient. We'll be blessed and eat the good of the land. But if we refuse and rebel, we will die by the sword. How is the faithful city become an harlot? I don't know that I used this one in that series on Babylon. I used one to Ezekiel 16, I remember, where he spends a whole chapter showing how Israel has gone into harlotry and has become the great whore of Revelation 17 and 18 and will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet that she is currently writing. But how has the church become a harlot? How did we stray from God and take on the lovers of this world? He called us out of that. And then slowly we began to slip back into it taking on more and more and more of the world's ways. It's entertainment, it's foods, everything that the world has to offer, we began to imbibe of and spend less and less time with God and take Him for granted. How has the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers, the whole Tukat's bunch, are spiritual murderers. Murdering God's people. I'm not so sure that they didn't even physically murder Herbert Armstrong. I'm not making a, an accusation here, but some reports I've heard of the guards 
and security on campus indicate that there was a terrible row that night, and Joe Cox was fired that night, and he wasn't willing to take that. Did they put a pillow over his mouth and kill him? And then go into absolute harlotry in the world? Wouldn't be the first time Israel had killed its murder, murdered its kings. Wouldn't be the first time they'd stoned the prophets, would it? Your silver has become gross, your wine mixed with water. Did we not just read back in Malachi how he would refine the sons of Levi? Instead of being purified and getting purer and purer, we started slipping back and taking on the impurities of the world. Now he tells us, you've got to get out of there. I'm going to refine you. I'm going to put you under pressure. Your filters become gross, your wine mixed with water. Ever drink watered-down wine? Boy, isn't that good. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Money has become too much. The motivating factor of the ministry, the leaders. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. There's one big group today that has elections, and they have politicking, and they have people taking people to dinner to get their votes. Are you going to find righteousness in that kind of government? Is it going to be there? It can't be there, because people love a reward and they love a gift. They follow after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come to them. They get so concerned about politics and position and office and money that they forget those who are in need. We can't allow that to happen to us. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel. He lets it be known just who he is when he makes this pronouncement. Ah, I will ease me of my adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. And I will turn my hand upon you and purely purge away your dross and take away all your tin. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning, back when there was still integrity in the church before that integrity was lost. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Not the city of harlots, but the faithful city. <clears throat> God is going to purge away the filth and the impurities, and he's going to make us refined. It's pure silver and pure gold, so that we'll be worthwhile to make up his crown with. You don't, or wouldn't want to go to a jewelry store and buy a fine gemstone and have them put it in a conglomeration of impure metals, maybe that would fall apart and you'd lose your gemstone, would you? Well, God doesn't want to make up his eternal household out of impure materials. He wants us to be refined. And you know what it takes to refine? A lot of heat. That's what it takes. You know, I'd, I'd rather just turn to Isaiah 11 and read about the lion and the lamb laying down together and the ox eating grass. 
But I find in here that God has not been happy with our feasts over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that therefore we have to make some modifications. We have to look at ourselves and say, well, we're doing it like worldwide, that ought to be worldwide, that ought to be good enough. No. I think I can barely remember when it was at its best. We all camped out basically at Big Sandy. We all lived in tents or old trailers or old buses or whatever. And all the tent doors were open. You could just wander about and visit. People visited and talked for hours. They'd sit in the tents or the buses and talk about God for hours and hours. And then, and there were no restaurants around. I mean, there was Ma Tucker's Greasy Spoon down at the entrance. Awful place to eat. And you wouldn't think of it as fine dining by any means. You could go to Longview and find a yeah, reasonably fine restaurant. I mean, in those days, if we got to go over to, well, what was the name of that place? There was Johnny Cases over there, and there was uh, that Mexican place everybody likes to go to. El Chico's, I guess it was, yeah. We thought that was fine dining in those days. I've seen some fine dining since then, and uh, man, it was okay. But to us, it was wonderful, you know, to people who never ate out in Seminole, Texas, and didn't have the money to do so anyway. But I'll tell you what, we brought food to the feast, and we could sit around and talk about the things of God. And I think that that's what God is saying when he says, how did that which was faithful, that which was seeking me, and man, we had two services a day, and some of them were three and four hours long. Those preachers didn't have a stop button. You think I'm bad? They didn't even have one. Well, people sat there and took notes for four hours while Rod Meredith and some of those guys just went on and on and on and on and on. The mind can only absorb what the rear end can endure. But that faithfulness turned to, I mean, we had other interests. We, To use this analogy, other lovers. Disneyland and Cranston and you name it. Tour of Italy. That one blows me away. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. He's going to restore integrity, he says. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Be nice to turn from harlot to faithful. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's be it. Let's do it. Let's, let's go. Let's, let's do this. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, and her converts with righteousness. Or, as my margin says, they that return of Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. In other words, it is only going to be a 10% remnant. And they will return with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the eternal shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaths which you have desired, and you shall be confounded for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be as an oak whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. Like a dry tree. 
That reminds me of Ezekiel 17, where God says He'll remove the trees that grew, and He's going to turn a dry tree green at the end of Ezekiel 17. And the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. So he's going to have a faithful remnant that are going to return, and they'll be righteous, and the rest are going to go be like an oak tree without water. This is a no-brainer, isn't it? Which would you choose? I still have some time. All right, let's go to chapter 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now let's refer again, first of all, to spiritual Judah, the church. Secondly, to physical Judah. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all peoples shall flow to it. Doesn't Christ tell us that we are to be a light to the world? A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. A candle shining in a darkened world. Now God in the last days, we're in the last days, we're right on the cusp of this. In the last days it shall come to pass that he's going to establish his house, that is his temple, in the top of the mountains. Somewhere in the heights of Zion, God is going to establish his temple. And it will be exalted above the hills. It will be a light to the rest of the world. And it will be a light that the world absolutely despises and hates. It will be the only light on earth. And many people shall go and say, Come you and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the eternal from the church, from Jerusalem. This, I believe, will be fulfilled in the church through the two witnesses and the faithful remnant, as per Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6, in the last days. And then it will have an even bigger fulfillment in the millennium when Christ comes and returns to Jerusalem and that Zion again becomes the center of the earth. So there are two fulfillments of these scriptures. One to the church is an example in the end time and the other, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, the 144,000 with the Father and the Son there as the example to the whole earth. Two lights. One, a type of that which is to come through, hopefully, us, and that when the Father and the Son come, as per Revelation 21. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, until they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That means physically the nations will no longer war. They'll have no weapons of war anymore. But what about the church? Are we not among different groups in the church pretty much at war? Will this minister not speak to that one in another organization? Or do some churches, some organizations tell you not to even associate with those in other organizations? Is that peaceful? Or do we right now have a state of more or less undeclared war 
going on among the churches of God today. Just like we have an undeclared war in Iraq. That doesn't make those who are blown to bits any less dead than if we had declared war. When will we beat our swords into plowshares and quit hacking on each other and plant a productive crop? We have a chance to start right here among ourselves. This is the place to start. If that church and that church and that church and that church don't do it, that's their problem. Well, we have a chance. We have a chance to set an example. We have a chance to quit beating on others and quit beating on ourselves. I mean, yeah, and quit beating on each other here. Now, there is a time to lift up your voice and cry aloud and say we can't do what's being done. But the comparison should not ultimately be between us and other organizations. Our comparison should be with how God wants something done and live up to that. O house of Jacob, come you and let us walk in the light of the eternal. Therefore you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines. <clears throat> so many in the church today, as in the nation, are being fed from the east. Eastern religions. More and more across America, people are taking funny poses and doing yoga and transcendental meditation, borrowing from the demon religions of the East. The Jews, particularly Judaism, I'm not decrying Jews per se here, but physical Judaism is a pagan religion deriving its doctrine from the East. And yet we have many people in the Church of God today who looking at the Church and saying it's void of righteous leadership are turning to Judaism which is a pagan eastern religion God is forsaking us because we're being replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines there's one minister one organization I know I've heard a lot about recently who is saying that Ronald Reagan was a fine Christian man. He'd probably be in the first resurrection. Give me a break. The man was a communist, and in Hollywood he was known as Red Ronnie. His wife was in touch with soothsayers, astrologers, in contact with demons, and went to her demon uh, advisors, and he took their advice. And he's going to be in the first resurrection? No way. The man was never converted. He never understood God's way. Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. There's a good description of America as the leader of Israel today. Plenty of everything. Materiality coming out our ears. And lots of war machines. Horses and chariots are symbolic of war machinery. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. 
Anything we can manufacture is what we spend our time and energy with. Our children have idols. They have little, what they call Game Boys and Playstations, and maybe those are archaic words by now. I don't know what they've been replaced with. But they work them by the hour. By the hour they stay and play with those things until their eyes cross. That's their idols. That's what they spend their time with. They become absolutely hooked on them. Computer games played hour after hour after hour. Killing, killing, killing! How godly can you get? Destroying the bad guys. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. That which their own fingers have made. Isn't the manufacturing sector and all the material things that we have made what we spend our time and energy with. Now we have somebody else make it for us. Chinese do it all for us. So we don't have to work much at all. We just get to play with this stuff. Day after day, hour after hour, every spare moment it seems. And the average man bows down and the great man humbles himself. Therefore, forgive them not. In other words, they bow down and worship materiality. So God says, don't forgive them. We've got to get out of this Babylonian system and the clutches and the bondage that it's holding us under. Somehow, some way, we have to break the bands. That's what he tells us to do in Isaiah 52. We're in Isaiah, aren't we? We'll get to that. Some year. All right, what does he say? You who bow down before materiality and everything that we have in this age, speaking both to the physical nation who does it and those of us who very much still do too much of it. The application is to the church and to physical Israel. Enter into the rock and hide you in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty. This isn't talking about going into a place of safety. This is saying, run and hide, God's coming after you. That's what this is saying. Remember in Revelation where it says, they'll go into the caves and the rocks and pray for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them so that they can die because life has become so miserable that they'd rather die than live? That's what this is talking about. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. All Israel and 90% of the church is what this is talking about. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. What does that tell you about the spirit of competition? and raising ourselves above one another. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures, and the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Anything that sticks up is going to be leveled. Should we not be humbling ourselves and bowing before God now? 
God is the only one that will be lifted up. The idols he shall utterly abolish. Everything that we have built in the infrastructure of this nation is going to be torn down. When the towers fell in New York, it was only, well, the two main ones, but there were a couple other buildings severely damaged as well. So about four towers, basically. But Ezekiel says that it will be scraped like a rock. All the towers will come down. What we saw on 911 was only the very beginning of what is about to happen. Maybe we had a hundred terrorists involved in that. There's another billion and a half out there who want to do the same thing to everything else. And God is going to turn them loose. And he's going to let it happen. He's going to wipe away the entire infrastructure of what Israel has built here. Every church in this nation will be leveled and its steeple knocked flat. Every Washington Monument, anything that looks like it, that sticks up on this earth is going to be knocked flat. Our society is going to be scraped into the dust. Has not this already been happening in the church? Is that which was built and dedicated to the great God, the auditorium in Pasadena, been diminished and demeaned and let go without proper care? Isn't it about to be either used as a place for worldly entertainment, and already has been to some degree, or not flat, either by bulldozers because they want to put in housing for others, for people, or by earthquake, or however God chooses to do it. Everything the church made has basically been knocked flat. Bridget Wood is gone. Dick Sandy is gone. Been sold to pagans. Pasadena is almost gone. Being sold to people who will knock most of it flat. Is the application to both the church and the world, or is it not? We began to worship materiality in jet airplanes and auditoriums and dining halls and gymnasiums and fine clothes and high living and God knocked it down. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty when he rises to shake terribly the earth. In that day a man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. Anything that you treasured, the moles and the bats can have. Moles, moles work underground, so a lot of it's going to get buried, and bats fly at night. To go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. Cease you from man whose breath is in his nostrils or wherein is he to be accounted of. Cease to bow to man in his society, in his way, he says. Turn to God with your whole heart. Otherwise, when he shakes the earth, you will be shaken. Doesn't Hebrews tell us that only those things which cannot be shaken will remain? 
doesn't Haggai say that during the context of the rebuilding of the latter temple, just at the end of the book of Haggai, he's going to shake terribly the earth. Doesn't it tell us in Zechariah, end of chapter 2, rise and do your work and begin to shake the earth. The church is almost not flat now. It won't be long till the remnant comes together and the rest and the world with us is going into tribulation. Choose you this day where you will be. Choose you each day where you will be. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, does take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of the fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, the eloquent orator. Hasn't the church been decimated? Haven't evangelists and leaders who once were looked up to and respected gone back into paganism, left the church, or they're still in it as hollow shells, preaching what they think is popular so the tithes and the offerings will keep coming in. I understand why people began to try to find ways not to tithe. They saw terrible misuse of those funds. Misused, abused. But that doesn't take away what God says needs to be done. But God's taking away all the blessings spiritually that we had, and he's beginning to take away that which physically the nation has had. It won't be long until this empty, hollow shell of American society is going to crack and the shell fall away and nothing will remain. We owe so much to so many nations and to the central bankers that when the American dollar is no longer of any value, they will not be willing to accept dollars for mortgages. They will come in and repo the whole nation. There is only one thing that I can see that is causing the dollar to still have any value whatsoever today. We are trillions of dollars in debt. We have trillions of IOUs out there. Why would anyone want a dollar today? The euro is worth 22 to 23 cents more than a dollar. A lot of individuals, a lot of people, are now selling dollars and buying euros. Now, this has not reached epidemic proportion yet, or the dollar would be utterly valueless. There is only one thing that I can see that causes the dollar to retain any value at all today. And that is that the whole world is compelled to buy oil with dollars. That is the only currency, by agreement of the nations, that can be used to buy oil. Saddam Hussein initiated a program to buy oil with euros. And he immediately got attacked by America. The leaders of the American government understand 
But the only thing holding the American dollar up at all is that people are compelled to buy dollars to, buy, to use to buy oil. So they buy U.S. Treasury notes. They receive dollars. And they can buy oil. But the day that by agreement the dollar is no longer used to buy oil, but they change it to the euro, no one will want an American dollar. They won't be good for anything but to throw in the street. And that's where they'll be thrown. I think that will be what precipitates the financial crash of both the American monetary and therefore the world monetary system, and the only savior will probably be the euro. It's already worth 25% more than the dollar. So the only reason anybody would want a dollar is to buy oil. They'll cast their idols of silver and idols of gold, their monetary system, into the street. God is going to take away, physically, the water and bread. You won't be able to buy or sell. There won't be anything to buy or sell. And he's going to knock down the leaders, both of the physical nation, as he is already doing among the church. So there will not be one stone left upon another. The organizations are going down. They're going down. And God is going to raise up two to lead his remnant church that's all. The rest of the churches are going into the tribulation. And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them, and the people shall be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. In our nation, we have children who call the shots through arguing, through whining, through rebelling, through screaming, through whatever form they think they can get away with and do. And in the church, we have those who are babes who would love things. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, be you our ruler, and let this ruin be under your hand. When it all starts coming apart, all those who wanted to be teachers and preachers aren't going to want to be there anymore. This will be the cure. They'll get over that. And that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. We're coming to a time no one's going to want to be in the ministry. No one's going to want to be a leader. We'll come to that time physically in our nation when no one will want to run for office because they don't want the destruction to occur on their watch. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the eternal to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them and they, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe to their soul for they have rewarded evil to themselves. Do we display our sin in this nation? Surf through the TV sometimes. See if our sin is not displayed. What do they like in the themes of their programs? Illicit sex, fornication, 
homosexuality, murder, lying, stealing, <clears throat> any kind of crime, what's becoming more and more and more popular? All of these investigation into crime things. <clears throat> because people are obsessed with sin and crime. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. <coughs> Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. God's going to do to us just what we have done. As for my people, children of their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead you, children and women, cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. <coughs> the Eternal stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Eternal will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for you have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. The rich get rich and the poor get poorer, and the rich will lay it on you. And it happens within the church as well. What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Says the Eternal of hosts. We misuse and abuse the people, told them, pray, pay, and stay, and we'll use the money however we want to. That was wrong. Moreover, the Eternal says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their little tiny high heels. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. Now, because American women and Israelite women want to show all they can and still not be arrested, and wear it as tight as they can, and even if it isn't showing skin, it's showing everything under that can possibly be shown, that's the way they tend to dress. And God says, you want to show it, I am going to show it all. And they're going to come in and invade you, and they will strip you naked, and they will rape you and your daughters, and they will cut your pregnant women open with a sword and dump your babies on the ground. That's what's going to happen to our society because of the clothing and the ornaments that our, our passions would have us wear. You want your tummy bare? They'll bear it. They'll slice it open with a sword. That's what's going to happen to American girls and women. And the church is the same way. Right now we have a competition among the churches to see who can be the finest, the best looking that everyone should come to. We advertise our feast sites, it seems. We advertise our churches. We say, we're the best. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest church of all? I'm not going to go through and try to explain all the meanings of all these strange-sounding things that our churches and the women of the nation wear, because some of them are lost in antiquity. In that day, the Eternal will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the moon, uh, the circles, the heart shapes which are obscene. 
These are all going to be taken away. The chains, the bracelets, the mufflers, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs, the headbands, the tablets, the earrings, the rings, the nose jewels. It doesn't mean all decoration of the body is wrong. But God tells us the women should dress modestly. They should not try to show off their wares. And the churches should be modest and not try to impress everybody about how wonderful and how righteous they are, like the Pharisees did, standing on the street corner saying, I'm the most righteous of all. God hates that. He would rather be as us be as a publican and sinner who says, God forgive me a sinner, and could not even look up. That is the attitude God would have us be in, not as the Pharisees were. We could talk about just the modern things or counterparts of these things that the women use to dress themselves up then. Look at society today. Look at the way society in general dresses, the way they fix themselves up to look like the fairest of all and to draw attention and bring that principle forward, and God hates it. God hates it. It shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell and perfume, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. In other words, God is saying, you spend all this time trying to look good, but you don't act good. God is not concerned about the outside of the cup. He's concerned about the inside of the cup where the corruption is. It's the minds and hearts and emotions he's concerned about. But our society today concentrates on the outside. Want to look as good as we can look on the outside, but not alter the inside. And God says it's the inside that stinks. That's what he's worried about. For our obsession with looks is not pleasing to God. Now, that doesn't mean we should let ourselves go and never brush our teeth and comb our hair or wash our clothes. But it means that our emphasis should not be what the emphasis of this world is. It should be just the opposite. Yes, we should take care of ourselves, dress cleanly, dress modestly. We can wear jewelry. We're not wearing anything that looks artificial or like an over-the-hill hooker or anything of that kind or even one young just hitting the street for that matter. We are to dress modestly, naturally, and we are to clean up the inside and let that shine through our eyes. What do we do to show off the eyes today? We dab mascara and fake uh, eyebrows and put circles around it and rouge and everything to make the and lipstick to make it look like a clown face. We want to use bright color to make you look and be impressed by our faces. God says our character should shine out our eyes. That's the light that you show is the shining of godly character out of our eyes in comparison to the way the world does of making it shine on the outside and hiding the inside behind guard glasses. 
as a result of our desire to look good on the outside without cleaning up the inside, God says, your mighty men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. No one will look anymore. God is going to knock down the church till there's not one stone upon another, and everyone will not be able to stand up and crow and say, we're the finest daughter of them all. And in our physical nation, God is going to do to our women that which causes them to sit on the ground and hide their face in shame because they have tried to impress with the outside rather than cleaning up the inside. We have a job to bow our head and repent before God and humble ourselves, clean up the inside of the cup instead of trying to impress with the exterior. If we'll do that, God will honor us. If not, he will destroy us. And he is not a respecter of persons. Any who do not repent and turn to God with their whole heart are going to be destroyed because he is only going to take that which is pure and clean and right and use it as an example in the millennium because then it will be a godly society and the inside will be the concern. If you even have a thought of sin, your teacher will appear and say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, this is the way walk you in it. We'll get to that a little later on in the book of Isaiah.